Hello and welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nika Anani and I am your host. Here on The Connected Generation, we explore all things legacy wealth and legacy businesses. How to build businesses and wealth that would have sustained impacts not only over time, but also over space. And we have these conversations in an environment of authenticity, curiosity and vulnerability. This week, I was joined by an amazing duo, Dr. Jamie Weiner and Ross Hayworth. Dr. Jamie Weiner is a psychologist and co-founder of The Quest for Legitimacy, which is a phenomenal contribution to the family enterprise space. It is a groundbreaking model for successfully navigating the unique struggle of growing up in a prominent family. Ross Hayworth is a family business advisor and they conducted a series of intimate conversations with rising generation members from all over the world, starting with a simple question. What is it like to grow up in the land of giants? And having synthesized all the conversations and analyzed it, they brought these stories to life in their book, The Quest for Legitimacy, How Children of Prominent Families Find Their Unique Place in the World. So we spoke a lot about that and unpacked this latest book, which came out earlier this year. It's a wonderful, wonderful conversation on how rising generation members in prominent families can successfully navigate their quests, how they can help reduce their isolation, how they can achieve agency and discover their true contribution they can make in the world. So I'd encourage you to tune in, enjoy and share this episode with someone that you know is navigating generational transition as a rising gen member. Hi, Jamie and Ross. Welcome to The Connected Generation. It's awesome to have you. Hi, thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Great. So you are founders of The Quest for Legitimacy, which explores how um, rising generation members can successfully navigate the challenges that come with growing up in a prominent family. But before we dive into that, um, love to hear from both of you, your personal journeys into this space of family enterprise advising. Perhaps, Jamie, you may start. Yeah, I probably would blame it on my wife. Carolyn um, came from a business-owning family, and um, we're both psychologists by background. Um, Parents died 35 days apart from each other. There had been a generation before that when that business closed, because they had a separate business, stopped talking to each other and didn't show up at each other's funerals. We thought it might be a pretty good idea to make sure that didn't happen in her, our family. And that was the, the beginning of doing work with the original company I have called Inheriting Wisdom. And it didn't take long for me to notice that the rising gen in the families where we're working with looked a little challenged. Maybe they didn't stand up and scream, Mm. you know, this is a little tough, but it was apparent that there was something there that nobody really was exploring in a way that made sense for me. Mm. And Ross? Yeah, so um, my background is my uh, profession of origin, if you like, is uh, financial planning and wealth management. And I worked with high net worth and ultra high net worth families um, in a number of organizations looking at kind of that uh, 
family while planning space. But I became more and more interested and fascinated around family dynamic and non-financial elements that go into things like success transition um, between generations. And that piqued my interest and delved more and more into the world of family dynamics. Came across family business advice as a kind of a profession's own right. So um, it appealed to me immediately. Um, there was a bit of a barrier in the, a lot of the conversations I was having because it was there with a financial planning hat on. Mm. And as cool as pensions are, they're not necessarily um, the solution to every mm. um, aspect of uh, family dynamics. So um, I, I took the leap into that world and moved away from financial planning and wealth management. I've um, been advising families on their family dynamics transit since then. And five years ago, just over five years ago, um, got introduced to Jamie and I've been working with him uh, on this uh, very exciting project since then. Wow, incredible. Um, Jamie, you mentioned that when you were working with The Rising Gen, you often observed that there were challenges that they were facing. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I probably could talk about that for quite a while. But, you know, being a psychologist, one of the things you learn to do is to pick up on body language. And so um, even when I was in private practice, I could walk into a waiting room and... Mm almost feel or intuit the um, the body language, somebody coming into the room. And when you're working with a whole family, the subtext of what's going on with the rising gen mm. may not be verbalized, but it may be in the facial responses to things that are going on. Mm. It may be in the stories they tell about how They've modified their life experiences to kind of wrap around what they think is expected of them by generations before. And I'm, I'm not blaming the generations before. Yeah. I'm just saying that's part of the dynamic that begins to happen. And that really began to lead to um, just a, a wealth of curiosity to get past what ex is expressed in those public rooms with families mm. to be able to really start to talk to the rising gen. Mm. Incredible. And so five years ago, you started the journey um, with the research for the quest for leg legitimacy. Can you share more about that? Yeah. So first I had to get introduced to Russ. <laughs> and so how I was got that? introduced to, to, to Russ through um, Family Firm Institute Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they said, the guy, he's got a podcast. He probably can push the, the record button and help you out when, when you want to do these interviews. And we really started by wanting to um, ask a slightly different question because hanging out in the space, you hear a lot about, are they prepared? How much money should you give them? You know, are they entitled? Not, the image is not real great. Mm. And um, so we started asking everybody the question, what is it like growing up in, a, in the land of giants? And nobody asked us what we meant by giants. And we asked them who the names of the giants were. They all had at least one person, if not a collection of people that they could list. In some cases, it was a couple hundred years worth of history of giants mm. that they were born into. And um, 
that opened the door to a new perspective. That's powerful. Um, and Russ, I'm intrigued because you went from the quantitative side to the qualitative side. How was that transition? Um, I find talking about the qualitative side far easier than the quantitative side. For for a financial planner, I wasn't particularly mm. great at maths, for example. So luckily, I had teams around me that, that were able to, to make up for that. But I found the conversations and the discussions about um, experiences utterly fascinating and and when Jamie and I got introduced so firstly I made out it was far more complicated to press record than it needed to be because I really wanted to be involved uh, in the project so I over elaborated a little bit on on the complexity there but the the ability to to effectively have a blank bit of paper in front of us to ask about the experiences the lived experiences that people had had growing up in prominent families, being part of a rising generation that is mm. growing up in the shadow of a, of a giant. Without, just using that as an example, without having kind of a, a an agenda to go, well, I've got to turn this conversation back to the money somehow at some point mm. for, for me to be doing my job properly. It doesn't make sense. So the, the fact that that's why I've moved into the um, advisory role that I have now it's also why this um, project in particular, I think, is so relevant because we are asking about the experience that has been lived and then we're looking mm. at the commonalities that have um, been uh, realised throughout the fact we spoke to 24 rising gen from around the globe, a mixture of male and female, um, different ages. We talk about rising generation. Um, I think our oldest participant was 75, which wouldn't necessarily term as, mm. say, a next gen. Um, but their experiences are so rich and so valuable for others to be able to learn upon. And um, Jamie's done such a fantastic job in writing about those experiences and sharing those stories in the book. Um, it's it's a really exciting thing to be involved in. Incredible. And so what were the like commonalities you found when you asked that question? Like, what's it like to grow up in the world of giants? Um, what commonalities did you find across these rising gens? So I would guess the first one was they all could tell us about giants. Hmm. And they could tell us about an experience that I don't think a lot of people have heard, heard as intimately as we've heard it. So they would talk about the isolation of growing up in one of these families. And in that isolation, the moments that they, you know, question whether they measured up Mm. and the sense that even as they got older, even as they looked successful, that feeling didn't go away Mm. and that it was a tremendously uncomfortable feeling and that somewhere along the line, they felt pulled between, um, am I here in this world to do what my family wants me to do, which may not be a bad thing if it's I have some agency and some choice, mm. or am, am I here in this world because I need to discover who I am and what I want to do? And I know we'll talk more about the cultural implications of all of that, mm. um, but that agency thing was a big deal. Um, Mm. and, um, all that then ultimately drives back to what's the impact I'm going to have? What am I going to do with my life? That's going to make me feel like I, there's a good reason for being on this planet. 
you know, yeah. these are, I so relate to everything you're saying. And these are f- the similar challenges that my clients are constantly grappling with. Um, so it's really great that there's a book that validates their reality um, and the lived experiences, as you alluded to. Sorry, Ross, were you going to say something? Yes, I just, just want to build on that. So Jamie and I would conduct the interviews and we would start with the question around explain to us what it's like, what your lived experience has been like. And over time, we obviously spoke to more and more different people. And very often when the call ended, it was over something like Zoom and the person would then leave that Zoom room and, and Jamie and I would be staring across um, at each other, uh, as you may detect from our accents, I'm based in the UK, Jamie's based in, in the US, but we would be sat in this room together looking across kind of just in silence, processing what had happened in those interviews. And we could start seeing some of these patterns emerging and say, well, hang on, what they said is broadly similar to what they said. Now, different circumstances, different specifics around it, but the general themes that were emerging were, were becoming clearer. And Mm. Jamie went to a conference um, in, I think it was Miami, and got in the elevator and in true elevator pitch style delivered uh, an articulate description of what it was um, that he was doing. And it happened to be to a researcher who was picking up an award for um, his research paper, so Frank uh, Barbera. And by the time they got out the elevator, we had a research team as part of the interview process. Wow. And what they were able to do was to validate what Jamie and I were thinking in terms of the commonality of this experience. So it's all very well, Jamie and I thinking, well, we think we can see these patterns in these recurring themes in the stories that we're hearing. What the academic research allowed us to do is to to back that up. And they took the words and turned it into data to highlight those patterns, the four phases of uh, what we've termed the quest for legitimacy. So it kind of, it was Mm -hmm. reassuring to Jamie and I that we weren't just imagining these things um they were actually real um but it but it added some real substance to the work that we were doing because it um effectively backed up uh, what we were thinking about it and the research team of frank and joel were, were fantastic in uh, helping us with this as well incredible incredible contribution to the family enterprise space um i'm intrigued you mentioned the four stages um of the quest for legitimacy can you share more about that so why not I do one and then you do the next one, Russ? I'm going to start with awareness because it's my favorite. Well, I have a favorite story about it. Awareness is that moment that you begin to realize there's something different in your life. Mm. And we interviewed one woman who was um, from a diamond family. And dad would show up at night with a bag of diamonds and teach her how to count by counting mm. diamonds. And then she went off to school and she realized you know what? Not everybody learns how to count by counting diamonds. And she knew the world was a little bit different. Hmm. And then from there, you moved to um, an ex- um, sorry, a tug of war phase where you had this awareness that something's different in your world um, and you're living in that world, but there's another world out there. And that kind hmm. of tug of war between each of those um, realities and you know, it can start with younger kids where they come home from school and they have a funny joke or an anecdote and you go, well, that's cute and kind of where's that come from? It can then mm-hmm. grow into 
other external influences that aren't quite so cute but it's it's an important element is that kind of tug of war and, and appreciating that the world that you're growing up in is potentially different to that one uh, that is outside the, the realms of the researchers talked about it in terms of institutions what they mean is any group of people so family is an institution in that sense and so those um, elements that are external to that uh, institution uh, are starting to have an influence uh, on your thinking and that that's the tug of war mm-hmm. that period is followed by a period of exploration um you know at some point of our life we kind of internalize the world we were born born into mm. and it just stays there forever right we carry it with us we actually modify the stories over time but that's another another question but we go out into the world and we explore and um we heard amazing stories of exploration and um we had one participant who I kind of view as the queen of exploration um her dad's um business which is a separate story uh ended up in trouble so she watched her father kind of and um from from Mexico so a mm. very family oriented culture and she figured out with the help of her mom how to travel around the globe and and gain different experiences some doing filling active philanthropic things and others where she was in rooms with with other rising gen from different parts of the globe and they would talk about the differences in their culture and so she really came back and wanted to give a gift to continuing to work with people from Mexico but that mm-hmm. exposure to the world just was was a gift that you know kept on giving for her mm. yeah and then we move to the final phase and it, it we might come on to this a bit later on but it's important to realize this isn't it's not a linear quest in that sense in that it's not that you go through these four phases and that's it you get a certificate to say you have legitimacy and, and off you go <laughs> there's periods mm-hmm. in our life where we get brought back into the awareness phase or the tug of war and exploration phase uh, and then the final phase as i mentioned is um, what we've termed as ownership and it's important when we're talking about things like family enterprise family office and family wealth we're not talking about ownership of assets we're talking about mm. ownership of our own life and uh, there's a, a story if i can that highlights this. Uh, one of the participants, I'll, I'll keep the, the story brief, but one of our participants received an email whilst he was on holiday following the World Cup. And in that email, it was from his mum and dad. And in that email, it said, we've been talking and when you come home, you need to look for another um, job because your role within the family enterprise is no longer here. So he effectively got mm. sacked by his father whilst he was on holiday which is quite a big um, event in somebody's life and it led to a breakdown in communication between um, the parents and um, our participant and throughout that phase that they um, they had that exploration they went and got um, a number of sort of certificates and awards MBAs and degrees etc but the point of ownership was three years later when that person was able to walk down their parents drive knock on the door not mm. knowing what would happen and when the door opened his father was there and with a lump in his throat the father said thank you because i couldn't have been the one that reached out after this 
it, it wasn't in their culture to, to be able to do that. And so um, Rishi is the, the name of the, the guy that um, took part in our, our research by Rishi taking ownership and going and seeing his father and starting to rebuild that relationship. That was a huge moment of ownership for him. And that's, I think, is mm. another example of showing the, the value of those phases is it allows you to grow and to take ownership of elements rather than be hidden away from it. Powerful. You said something that's still ringing in my head that often in the industry we talk about preparation of ownership of assets, but ownership in this instance, you're talking about taking ownership of your life. And I think that's so beautifully said. Um, and you also mentioned it's not necessarily a linear process, one, two, three, four, and we're there and we're at ownership. Can you speak more to that? Yeah, I, th- I think the best example I can give on on that is part of our discussions with the rising gen that we spoke with, that would have brought to them moments of awareness. So it it's not like it in the stages of, say, you get to 18 and you have a moment of awareness and then at 21 you do this and it's not linear in that sense. They do follow each other to, to a certain extent, but just because you are made aware of something and then you go through that tug of war exploration and ownership phase doesn't mean that there's not going to be another period later on in your life where there's a, another level of awareness or another point in life where there's the, the need for exploration and, and taking ownership. Uh, and I think, again, it's it's easier to say this is a four-stage process, just follow steps one, two, three, and four, and you have legitimacy. Yeah. P- part of the... Um, kind of ethos is that the the quest for legitimacy is a lifelong quest. It's constantly such. Mm. It's constantly wanting to understand ourselves better and become better people. And I think that that for me is why, it's, in my view, it's non-linear. Jamie, I don't know what your views are on uh, that side of it. Mm. Well, you know, as you were talking, it occurs to me that one of the most public rising gen family members right now is King Charles III. Yeah. And he and I, nobody can see me. We're we're approximately the same age. I don't know what he's going through, but when I went through this, writing this book and the project with you, it brought me back into reevaluating the awarenesses I had, some of the tug of war between my family and me, what it's been like to explore. And, you know, I keep getting challenged to take ownership. Mm. And so that's why I think rising isn't about a generational period of a couple of years. I think it's about a choice about how you're going to live your life. Mm. It's interesting you said that when you brought up King Charles, because I think in the industry there was always reference to the Prince Charles syndrome um, of rising gens that wait until their turn to rule for a long period of time. And so the period in which you can be a rising gen can be until you're 70. It's not necessarily just um, for 20 to 35. So um, that's an interesting um, addition. And I wanted to touch on perhaps the dis differences you found amongst the participants maybe along culture or gender um if you can elaborate on that so let me come to that one second and just add that um you know we've been working on creating 
experiences that we're going to do for Rising Gen family members. And one of the thoughts we had was to do one for um, an elders contingent. I don't know if that's the right term. Do you know the number of people that are out there that are 50, 60 years old waiting for somebody to turn the reins over? It's huge. Hopefully mm. they've done a little bit of a quest. The cultural mm. element, and I'm sure Rossi has some comments too, but um, the one that stands out for me is we um, interviewed a woman from Istanbul who had come to the United States. And the instruction she was given by her Chinese parents was get an education, get an advanced degree, but whatever you do, come back. Hmm. And so she comes back. Her father's business is just grown. And so she helps him build a new factory. And probably not an uncommon experience. They, they don't always get along so well. And um, she, of course, wants to honor him because that's part of the culture. And so one day she decides, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a job. And she sets up some interviews. And the night before, she goes to her dad and says, Dad, you're going to be so proud of me. Um, I'm going to be able to bring, make my own money and bring my own money home. And her dad looks back at her and says, I don't get it. Where's my face in it? And both Russ and I, completely stupefied, are going, what is she talking about? And so we finally ask, and she said, well, my culture, the goal isn't about to find out who you are. The goal is about figuring out how you're going to honor the face of your parents, which in a lot of ways times implies working in the family business. Between you and me, I don't think it's so different in the United States. And um, and we realized she was now a product of two cultures. And we kept seeing that over and over again as the globe gets smaller. Mm. Yeah. Again, in terms of the cultural element, the story I mentioned earlier about um, Rishi, he comes from a, a multicultural family, so his father... Um, is Indian, his uh, mom's Caucasian, they, they uh, are from Canada. Um, and that, the, the two cultures uh, impact on, in particular, that relationship that Rishi had with his father, in that it, it wouldn't have mm. been in his father's culture to be able to reach out and bridge that gap that had been created through um, their experience. But the influence that um, Rishi had from, from the... Um, exploration that he took after having that event meant that he could go up and knock on that door. Um, had he not, they may still not be speaking to, to this day. We don't know, but it it needed to be him that made that step because culturally it wasn't something that his father felt um, he could do. Um, j- just touching briefly on the, the gender side, and I'll let Jamie explain because he, he does it so well. Jamie wrote the book. So we conducted the research together, but Jamie wrote the book and Jamie thought it was really important to feature a chapter on the quest for women. But again, as you may detect from our voices, neither of us are women. And so I know Jamie was very nervous mm. about writing something that felt as if it was a man telling 
a woman this is the the, the nuance around it were it, we were really sensitive about um fortunately because of that he again he's done a fantastic job in in terms of articulating the stories of the women that we spoke to to highlight those points and i think it, jamie you're probably best placed to delve a bit more into to that side of it but i think it's important to point out that the sensitivity around the fact that you know uh, uh, so, having to yeah so Rosa, you know i got i got warned i got told whatever i do don't be another person who talks about women being the chief emotional officer in the family <laughs> and um so i i stayed as far, as far away from that as i could and the best thing that i could do was to tell the stories of three women and let them tell the story about the roles of gender and each had a completely different version of the story. Mm. Um, and, um, and, you know, it ranged from, from somebody who um, was, the first, was the first woman in, in a family boardroom, third or fourth generation, I can't remember exactly. She remembers her grandfather saying, you know, if there's ever going to be a woman in this boardroom, she's going to be serving tea. Wow. And lo and behold, she's not serving tea. She's um, recently had a baby, so she needs to explain to the board that she's going to need to take time to breastfeed. And one of the people in the, um, from the professional staff says, well, can't you find somebody to do that for you? And she, I, I think politely, leaned back, but not unemotional and said, you know, the, 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 the days of midwives who do that is long gone. And, um, and so you just, you get the sense of it being a different world for women. Mm. And we can look at the politics of the world. We know that when countries become more repressive, women are pulled in first yeah and um so there's a powerful message in in all of that about what the struggle is for women to define themselves incredible um you mentioned the theme of isolation um and i wondered does community help in any way to help people move through the four stages yeah um, I think the presence of isolation and loneliness is because there wasn't that presence of people who could understand what these, at the time, the kids were going through. And the, the fact that they, in some circumstances, were very different to the peer group that they kept or the friendship group that they kept, it can be difficult mm. to go and say, look, I'm really struggling because I've grown up in a really wealthy family because if the, the natural inclination is, oh, poor you kind of thing. It's like, mm -hmm. God, first world problems. But that that's why we focused on the lived experience rather than the, the kind of financial or, or um, wealth background of, of the families because that isolation is real. It's a human emotion that they are feeling as a result of the environment that they're living within. And what we learned throughout the experience of those interviews 
is the presence of other people that feel the same way. They might be from different cultures, they might be from different backgrounds, they might have different levels of wealth, for example, but the presence of prominence and achievement in their life is something that they struggled with. And therefore, being able to talk about it and articulate it, I think Jamie would agree, they found the conversations with us very uplifting, the fact that they learned through that, that they weren't alone, even though for some of them they had been through um, you know, quite a, quite a few years of living in, in that uh, environment. They got some reassurance from the fact that they weren't alone in that experience. And that's what we're aiming to tackle with the experiences that we're delivering for Rising Gen, is to bring them together with <coughs> like-minded people to be able to talk about this stuff in a safe environment where um, people understand the, the experience that they've had. And, and, you know, the big dream that kind of comes out of that is, could you imagine if there were a way for Rising Gen members from Istanbul, Chicago, Latin America, across the globe, to be able to have a sense that they're part of a global community and that they're they're truly not isolated because they were mm. very intentional about using the term prominence because it, mm. it, it's there are a lot of people who live grow up in the shadow of people who are not wealthy and um, and I think there's some real potential to create impact in a different way. I completely wholeheartedly agree, and I'm just reflecting a theme I see is this isolation, particularly in societies where um, are quite close-knit. Um, the rising gen want to run away from those societies, so they don't want to be in their home countries, and they want to be like in the West or in the US or in Canada or in the UK, and it compounds the isolation. And there's very much um, a commonality amongst rising gens the world over this these themes that you you've uncovered of this quest for the search for agency this deep isolation grappling with my purpose what's the meaningful contribution i want to bring out into the world are so unifying um creating that community a global community will be so powerful yeah and i think as well you yeah, i think you're there there's a universal the, the four phases of the quest there, there's a a universal element to that with cultural nuances and with gender nuances. But the common thread that runs through it are those phases in the quest. And to, to be able to articulate with peers what that's been like and to have some guidance and facilitation through that is really powerful because there's a lot of power in, as you say, in that community feel of mm. um, having people that understand what you're talking about, um, talking about it with you. I think one of the examples I have, Nikkei, that you just made me realize about is my dad was a rabbi. So I grew up in a um, family that's tied to um, a several thousand year history hmm. that's spread across the globe. And I've gone to countries all over the world and it's, it's, it intrigues me because Jews tend to want to go look at a synagogue that was there. They want to touch in somehow because that idea of community is so central. I don't mm. think that's unique to Jewish culture, but I think that idea 
of people feeling connected is tremendously powerful. Mm. Indeed. And I guess um, having the quest for legitimacy and to the rising gens that are listening to this, what kind of key takeaways do you want them to take from this? Like what practical steps should they be thinking about um, in navigating this world of prominence, et cetera? So the first one I would say is I want the people, the rising gen who, who listen to make a conscious cho- choice and realization that they're on a quest. Mm. And that um, even though it may be, have rough moments, you know, because we talk about breaking moments in the book. Mm. People grow out of periods of liminality of feeling between it, betwixt and between because they make choices about their lives during those moments and they decide to continue to rising. And I think if people walked away, even with just that little as the one thing they take away from our conversation, it'd be a big deal. Yeah, I think I would add to that as well in terms of one of the other elements that we sort of discussed and uncovered in a lot of the interviews was the humanization of the giants in our lives is an important Mm. element as well because when we perceive people to be those giants and to to have kind of defied adversity and never had any bad periods in their life and they've achieved so much and there's so much success it's it's really hard to imagine how you might follow in those footsteps Mm. the, the reality is that the giants are humans too they're all going through this life for the first time kind of seeing how they get on as they go and they will have made mistakes Mm. and they will have had breaking moments of their own they will have had periods of liminality of their own where they're feeling betwixt between a bit lost and and grown from out of that which is where those achievements have come from and so understanding and appreciating that although there may be giants in your life they are human too and they will have made uh, mistakes along the way I think helps to kind of normalize some of the achievement that has been perhaps put on a, a pedestal previously i i love that piece on the humanization of the giants it's so important i love and I, a penny just dropped as you were explaining just now that the giants too have been on their quest so to speak and that's where the achievements came from um so the quest is you know being on the quest and the discomfort and the isolation etc it's so long as you move through it and come out the other side you will be able to make that meaningful contribution I guess a meaningful contribution does not necessarily mean achievement in terms of monetary etc it's deeply personal absolutely can tie back to being part of a family business not part of a family business it can be about making money if you want. It could be about making art if you want to, but it's about about you. Mm. Powerful. I have so, so, so loved this conversation. Um, I don't know if you've got any la- um, last words you'd like to share with the listeners. I think if people want to find out a little bit more about uh, what it is we're doing, I um, encourage them to check out the web- website, which is questforlegitimacy.com. Um, there are uh, various links there to 
what we've been talking about and um, if they want to you know get in touch and, and say hi and if, if this has resonated with them and they, they want to um, speak about it we'd be, be happy to and I, I've heard rumors that you can buy the book at any place the books are sold. So, um, and it's a great starting point and it ends with some exercises at the end of it so that you can begin to take your steps on the quest. It's a fantastic, fantastic book. Um, definitely recommend getting it. Thank you so much, Jamie and Ross. It's been awesome having you. No, thank you. This was terrific. Thank you very much. I loved, love, love that conversation with Jamie and Russ. I love the contribution they've made to the family enterprise space in giving Rising Gen members a clear tool and model to help navigate through their quests and to really find their place in the world. It's, it's so important. And I love that it starts with the simple question, what's it like to grow up in the world of giants? And I would say... Um, that I think it's important to, in family enterprises, quite often there is a pedestal, putting the founders on a pedestal and making them as huge giants, um, unrelatable, unattainable standards of success, right? But it is very important, like Russ was talking about, about humanizing the giants. And I think a way that is really helpful to do that is storytelling, um, storytelling in families enable us to get to know each other, not only share about our triumphs and all our wins, but also our trials, particularly for the founders to do this with the rising generation, because often the rising generation don't appreciate the humble beginnings, don't appreciate the hardship, the dark nights, um, and only see the success and see the significance and can be quite intimidated by that. And in my book, Lifetime's Legacy, I share on how you can conduct a timeline exercise which will allow for family members to share their triumphs and their trials, their growth opportunities, lessons learned and wisdom gleaned, how they see how significant events in their lives have shaped who they've become and how life experiences have prepared them for future challenges. So I would encourage you, if this is an area that you're grappling with, to pick up a copy of Lifetime's Legacy and check out the Lifeline exercise, which is in chapter... Just scrolling. I wish I knew this book inside out. <laughs> you would think I do. It's in chapter 21 in the importance of emotional proximity. So you may want to check that out. And then I would say that um, something to think about is developing deep empathy for the giants um, and appreciating that um, oftentimes the giants don't intend on being giants. They just happen to be giants in their lives. And you are probably a giant in someone else's life, right? Someone is probably looking up to you and seeing your level of success and significance and um, comparing themselves to you. And quite often, we also compare ourselves to a version of ourselves, a previous version of ourselves. I know for a fact that there have been incidents and um, seasons in my life where I've had huge success and moving forward and trying to recreate that success or to push ahead and even outdo that success has created a giant of sorts in my life, has created a shadow in which I'm, I have deep fear 
I feel very vulnerable about, I feel very insecure about. And I think appreciating that there's a side of us that's a giant and there's a side of us that is a human is super helpful in developing deep empathy for folks around us and to help us navigate this quest that Jamie and Russ were talking about. I wanted to talk a little bit about what are successful next-gen leaders doing? So next-gen leaders that are able to navigate all of this and a great book that I would recommend in addition to the quest for legitimacy, of course, is Raised Healthy, Wealthy and Wise. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And they interviewed inheritors that were grounded and successful, that were healthy, wealthy and wise. And they found some key commonalities amongst these folks that were very grounded and successful. They had a demonstrated ability to earn their own money, so they're quite independent. They were motivated towards starting and achieving their own personal goals. They had a solid sense of self that was not wrapped up in issues related to wealth, and they could overcome setbacks. And reflecting on that, it really is speaking to developing strong human capital, developing your skills, your competence, your character as a family member, not just preparing, you know, the wealth for the rising gem, but equipping the rising gem to find your place in the world, right? As Jamie and Russ have so beautifully articulated, as it helps to be content, engaged and productive. And I often talk about it's key as rising gen members to develop an arsenal of skills. And these are the three C's. Developing clarity, clarity over vision, over values, over what matters. The second is developing confidence. So confidence is not just um, an adjective, it is a learned skill. And I will talk about this on a future episode because I often say this in client meetings and people look at me like I'm like an alien. It is a learned skill and you can develop your confidence. And the last is important to develop strong communication skills. So we'll unpack that on a future episode. But thank you so much for tuning in. As always, take care and God bless you.